record this just in case I say something helpful. I, I got uh, several likes on the uh, uh, broadcast or podcast of uh, the, the uh, thing on community that I gave last month, so I'm encouraged uh, that uh, I, I'm not leading you astray in some way. What I want to talk about today is going to be uh, one of the pillars of Benedictine spirituality, which is finding God present in all things. Uh, but before I do that, uh, I want to just talk a little bit about uh, some nuts and bolts going forward. Um, I hope to get you a schedule soon of what's going to happen next year, the calendar year. And I'm looking to the, the persons who are oblate novices at this point. Uh, I am hoping that uh, we will have a date for oblation in the Easter season this year. Easter is a little bit later than usual, so it would be late. Uh, early May, probably, the second Sunday of May, I'm guessing. Uh, but I need to look at the calendar. Uh, I, but I'll be sending something around to all of you, and I'll send you something in the mail, Kevin, uh, as well as Paul, uh, Paulette. Uh, she also doesn't have email. Um, and let's see. Uh, you've probably heard, some of you have heard me say this. So this, this past year, uh, we had a, a canonical visitation and that means we had two abbots visit from other monasteries, and they interviewed all the brothers and gave a little report on how they think we're doing as a monastery, giving us some tips on how we can do better and so on, things to watch out for. Uh, they strongly recommended that I take some kind of sabbatical this year. Uh, and one of the abbots actually suggested something like two or three months away. It sounds great, but <laughs> I, I can't possibly take that much time away from the community. Uh, I, I just have too many sort of daily responsibilities. Uh, I did try to take two weeks here, two weeks there, and uh, ultimately I think I was away six weeks or something like that uh, in one and two week increments through uh, beginning in July and ending in October. Now, the upshot of this is I, I haven't been able to sort of catch up um, about four or five years ago, I came up with a, a rough estimate that for every week I'm away in the monastery, it takes me three weeks to get caught up. <laughs> so six weeks means 18 weeks, and it puts me into February. Um, but I am catching up. This is to say, I, I, my apologies that I haven't been as present to the oblates as I'd like to be. Uh, I hope to remedy that. My hope in, in the new year is we'll go back to having the, the online meetings on Saturday. But also what I'd like to do is just do very short podcasts on the rule. The rule is such a rich source of reflection. Uh, and uh, I, I think, you know, five minutes every two weeks or something like that, I could just begin with, uh, you know, listen, my son, to the words of a father who loves you at the very beginning of the rule and just give my, my interpretation of it. Um, the reason I was told to take a sabbatical is that you know, I've, I've actually been superior for 12 years, if you can believe it. <laughs> so uh, I have, uh, I've been commenting on the rule. We read it three times a year in chapter, so I've been through it 36 times uh, since I've been superior. And so I, I hopefully have a few things to say about that. But that also then will give us, when we have the online meeting, uh, we'll have some material to discuss. So it's not just me talking and making sure you're there and taking attendance, but uh, I can actually take questions and so on. So let me go now into talking about uh, finding God everywhere. 
So uh, part of what I hope to be sending you soon is, uh, this will be based on the program at St. Minor at Zarch Abbey in Indiana. Um, there are the sort of five pillars of Benedictine life, of Benedictine spirituality that we're expecting the Oblates to uh, engage in. So there's the divine office, there's Lexio Divina, there's connection to a community, there's involvement in your local parish, and then there is finding God in everything. So let me give you a little background on this idea of finding God everywhere. Maybe I'll start by saying um, we, we read a book at table a few months ago uh, that's called Everywhere Present. And we just we put it in our gift shop because the brothers liked it so much. It's by an Orthodox priest uh, whose name is Stephen Freeman. And uh, his image is that uh, in the modern world we've created what he calls a two-story universe. So we have sort of our secular natural world, and then there's, that's the first story. That's where we all live. And then there's the second story. We've sort of put God up there, and he's there someplace, but we don't talk to him very much. Or if we do talk to him, it's sort of, he's far away. We have to sort of get his attention. And uh, um, this is not the Catholic or Orthodox metaphysical understanding of the world or of God. You know, there is no such thing as a separation between the world and God. Uh, the world doesn't exist in, unless God holds it in being in every moment. Okay, so, so everywhere God is present. But then this raises a question, why don't we, why don't we see him? Why don't we know that? Why, why are there people who think he doesn't exist? Right? So that's part of what I want to talk about today. I was first alerted to the problem of this separation, uh, this kind of schizophrenia that we have. Uh, by uh, the great Jesuit Henri de Lubac. He wrote a book uh, called The Supernatural, and in it he, he examines this word supernatural, which the fathers of the church didn't use, actually. Okay. Um, it's based in, uh, it starts with the word nature, which we think of today as meaning a sort of the natural world. We think, I'm going to go out into nature and see beautiful things. Uh, the word nature, as it comes to us through the Aristotelian tradition, the, the Greek philosophical tradition, is a, the way to talk about the nature of a thing. Okay, we still use it this way. Like we say human nature, for example. Where we say it's, it's the nature of Beethoven's sonatas that they have this form. Right? So it refers to the, ki the kind of thing a thing is and how the thing is is can flourish. So human nature, for example, to flourish as a human being means I need to have enough food, I need to have intellectual stimulation, I need to have friends, I need to uh, sleep enough. Like, human nature has certain requirements and certain goals to it. So this is how Aristotle thought about nature. Okay? Um, but in the, as I'll, I'll, I'll go into more detail on this, uh, in the late Middle Ages, nature comes to take on a slightly different meaning. And uh, it, it starts to mean sort of this realm of the world um, separated in some way from God. Okay? So, for instance, uh, the, the great theologian Duns Scotus wants to see, say, pagans who, um, by natural reason, can know lots of things about this world but can't know anything about God unless God reveals himself. And so there's this idea that nature somehow exists separate from God. God is supernatural, and then grace is supernatural, and God 
sort of from time to time when he feels like it shoots grace into nature. So there's a separation between grace and nature. And de Lubach points out that this is not the patristic tra- tradition of the church. This is a late idea. But we have adopted this language. And as a result, many people today go about their lives in, in the world, in, in nature, without knowing God. You know, that God doesn't seem to be present. So Father Stephen Freeman, again, is, is writing about this from an orthodox perspective and saying, you know, actually, God is, is present in all things. God is here now. We, we wouldn't be here if God weren't here. Okay. Uh, but how do we understand that? Uh, that's, what, that's where I'm going toward. One of the things that um, de Lubach says is that nature itself is already a gift, which is to say it's a grace. The fact that we're here is already God's gift. We don't have to exist. We don't, we don't exist on our own. You know, God made us, and, and therefore, the, the, very, the things we consider natural, uh, my body, my voice, my intellect, uh, my feelings, all of these are gifts from God. Uh, because I didn't give them to myself. <laughs> I didn't, they didn't, they're not mine by right. Okay? If God didn't create me, I'm not here. So, so nature already, anything that we encounter in, in, in our day is a gift from God. None of it has to be. So, so this is part of what we're aiming to see, is that God is giving to us things that make our lives flourish all the time. Uh, you know, another way of finding God present uh, in our lives is, is to learn to cultivate habitual gratitude, you know, uh, not to take things for granted. Um, you know, so even like not great coffee coming out of a, a huge pot in a styrofoam cup, you know, but to say thank you, God. You know, that this is uh, that my brother Ezekiel made the coffee, and I, I get to enjoy it after uh, celebrating the Holy Liturgy. So, uh, three other thinkers helped me work through this problem, um, and I just uh, I'll mention them and, and some of the lessons I learned. And if you wanted to follow up, you could read some of their works. Um, I think the person who has exercised me the most in, in this area and so many other areas, though I don't talk about him a lot because his thinking is very difficult, is a, a fellow who just died last year. Uh, René Girard is his name. He was a French uh, thinker, but he taught in American universities for most of his life. And uh, he, he was actually a literary critic, which is kind of interesting. So he, he begins his career examining novels and the, the theme of desire in novels. And when he began his academic career, he was, uh, he was like a lot of French people, not, um, not outright hostile to the church, but sort of saw the church as kind of outdated, kind of an option, you know. Uh, but then when he started studying uh, literature, of all things, and he studied uh, his, his main sources in this uh, were Dostoevsky, the, the Russian author, um, and um, Stendhal, who was another French author, um, Shakespeare, Proust, so, so not particularly religious writers necessarily. Uh, he, he began to notice that we as human beings uh, tend to imitate each other. And the problem with this imitation is that if we imitate what other people like, we can come into competition with them, and then, then violence can break out. So uh, 
This is, I, I mentioned in my homily this morning about Black Friday at Walmarts, you know. Why does everybody want to get in there? They all want the same thing. Why do they want the same thing? Because they saw it in an adver advertisement, you know, and everybody, forget uh, my friends who have kids now, you know, every year there's some different toy that everybody has to have. I forget what it is this year. I, if you said it, I'd recognize it. But, um, you know, they're, they're... Stand outside for 13 hours to be the first one in. Yeah. Yeah. In the freezing cold weather. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, you know, I, I, I had, uh, uh, you know, my contemporaries of mine have kids who are, are uh, you know, between, say, 8 and 20 at this point. And uh, so the, the ones who are, like, 10 years old, 12 years old, like, there's something that everybody has to have. <laughs> and uh, so, like, if you go to Facebook... All these people are saying, does anybody know where you can get X thing? Because they're all out at this place, you know. So Gerard is, is seeing how, how we're competitive this way, how our desires lead to this competition, because we want the same things. Um, and what he sees is that uh, this, I, I, the, what I'm telling you now is a little bit outside of the topic for today. Um, but what happens is that uh, we, we want to find someone to scapegoat, because otherwise if we're competing with everybody all the time, uh, we, we can't live that way. And so uh, if we find somebody who's different in some way, who, who we can all sort of say, like, oh, it's his fault that we're all fighting. Uh, this is what happens to Jesus. And it was this connection that Gerard made, that, that Jesus Christ is the scapegoat for sort of all human competition and, and, and violence. And the difference in this case is that Jesus is actually totally innocent, whereas many scapegoats are somehow a part of the problem in some other, some way or other. Um, so he, he actually became a very devout Catholic after this, uh, after this insight that he had in the 70s. Uh, but he went further with this, and he was able to show that part of, I think, I mean, he, he's convincing to me, not everybody believes it, uh, that the, the sacrifices in pagan cults um, reenact this kind of scapegoating. The point is that uh, uh, it creates this weird tension between the sacred and the profane. And there are sort of two different realms, and they can't be bridged except through this action of sacrifice. And he said what, what happens in the crucifixion is that this distinction is sort of done away with because Christ reveals the duplicity in this action of, of getting rid of the scapegoat. So he reveals to us that we're the ones who, who, who crucified him, basically. That's the idea. And uh, much of what goes by the, the face of religion is a way of separating ourselves from that and creating a sacred realm where, where we pretend that, that we aren't violent. Um, that's a very rough... As I say, Girard's thinking is not that clear. Alexander Schmemann is, a, is another one whose thinking is similar in this area. So he's another Orthodox priest uh, who died in the 80s now. And uh, he, he, there are two things that he said in his writings which have been very challenging for me but illuminate this problem. One is that he, he again was very critical of what he called religion. Okay, now that sounds like, oh but uh, religion is you know, Catholicism is religion, so how can you be orthodox? He's a religion. How can you be critical of religion and be devout? 
But actually, what, what he and, and subsequent thinkers have been able to show is that the, the very idea of religion only exists in contrast to the secular world. Like before this distinction was invented around the time of the Reformation, uh, there was no distinction between relig the religious and the, sac the secular. Uh, kings were a part of the cult. Okay. Um, what, this, what this distinction does, there are two things it does. It marginalizes religion. Religion becomes private, and therefore it doesn't sort of touch on the things we do together in the world. The second thing is it legitimizes the violence that the secular people want to do. So, for instance, uh, we're reading a book at table called uh, The Myth of Religious Violence uh, by a fellow named William Cavanaugh, who teaches at DePaul. And he points out that... Uh, this idea that religion is inherently violent is a great excuse for the secular U.S. state to be violent against Muslims because we have no choice. Our violence is good if it's against Muslims because their violence is irrational and weird. It's religious, right? Uh, so this distinction between religion and the, the secular world is a part of the same distinction between the supernatural and the natural. And it marginalizes our proclamation of God's presence. It, it, it stuffs God into the second story, as uh, Father Stephen Freeman says. And uh, he's sort of safe up there, because we can sort of let him have a part of our life when we feel like it. <laughs> but otherwise, he stays out there somewhere. We, we do our business here in the natural, secular world. The last person, uh, oh, and something else about Shmeiman, which I think is, is interesting, is he, he criticized some Catholic language that we use. Uh, for instance, when our doctrine of the real presence, he doesn't take issue with the doctrine of the real presence. So that, that is actually, uh, you know, he, the Orthodox believe the same thing about the Eucharist, that Christ is truly present in it. What he said about the, the language we use to describe what's going on in this, uh, if we say something like, it's not just a symbol, it's the real presence, uh, the difficulty with this formulation is that it's Christ's true presence, but he is present through uh, the same kind of symbolic structure that other symbols use. So symbols always take you from, symbols always stand for something greater than what they are. So if I you know, write the word God on, on a chalkboard, um, it's a, the, three, the three squiggles I put on the board you recognize as the letters G-O-D, it's just chalk on a board, right? They're just, they're, they're squiggles. But they point to, when you read the word God, they point you to this, your understanding of who God is. So through a, a set of symbols, letters, I invoke for you the reality, which is God. Okay, so through the bread and wine, which are, are a type of a symbol, I present you with the actual presence of Christ, okay? Uh, and so um, the reason this is important for the, the topic today is that with this Catholic formulation, we can think, well, Christ is present in the Eucharist, but he's not present other places. He's present in the tabernacle, but he's not really present once we get outside of the church. So Shmeiman wanted to, to draw our attention to this problem. Um, so the last thinker is Cardinal George. In his first book, he begins by talking, uh, and, and uh, if, hang in there because I, I'm giving you sort of the theoretical structure uh, 
at the beginning, and hopefully it will get more interesting after this, or, or less, depending on what sort of person you are. Um, so Cardinal George, in his first book, uh, he begins by talking about a concept that, again, sounds very tricky. Uh, it's univocity. Uh, univocity is what happens when we imagine that God, God exists in the same way that we exist. Uh, so I've already said, you know, we, we don't need to be here. We are here by God's free choice. So, so our existence is dependent on God. We can't exist without God. God's existence is not dependent on anything. God simply exists. God is, okay, in a way that we, we can't say the same thing about ourselves. Because God exists because he's God. We don't exist, be- I don't exist because I'm Father Peter. <laughs> you know, I exist because God wills me to exist because he loves me. And the same can be said for each of you. Uh, but God exists because God is. And so there's a distinction between God and us. Um, the reason this is important is because when we start to imagine that God is, uh, God's being is the same as our being. Uh, that he's just another being like us, uh, then this, this, this is, means uh, we speak the same way about God as we speak about ourselves. That's what it means to be univocal, one voice. Or univocity means we speak with one in the same way about God and about us in terms of existence. The problem with this is it puts us in competition with God. Just as we, we can't be everywhere, you know, uh, at, at once. As uh, creatures, we only exist in one place. Okay? But God is not a creature, and so God is not limited by space or anything like that. God doesn't exist in space, because space is God's creation. Okay? So, so God exists if there were no space, God would still exist. Okay? Um, and the, the difficulty with this, again, is when we think of God as being like us, if we don't see him, he, he's somewhere else. You know, just This is a, a kind of unthinking habit of, of mind we get into. That when we pray, we've got to sort of get God's attention because he's there somewhere. Rather than saying, no, no, God is actually here. God, God already is within me through the grace of baptism. I've already received the Holy Spirit in confirmation. I don't have to get God's attention. The Holy Spirit's already praying in me. I have to become aware of this. Okay, so, so God's not far away. He's not, he's not in a space uh, like we are. So we can't speak of God's being in the same way as we can speak of our being. Uh, and we, this is what uh, Thomas Aquinas would have called... Uh, speaking by analogy, if we speak of God's being, it's analogous to our being. You know, uh, God does exist, but in a different mode from us, and, and we can only understand it by analogy to the way we exist. Uh, so, that's the background. So, Saint Benedict has this interesting thing he says at the end of his section on the divine office and how we should comport ourselves at prayer. St. Benedict says that we believe that the divine presence is everywhere. Okay? 
But then he says something very interesting, which might seem to put him in league with these problematic ideas that I've been trying to outline. Uh, he says, uh, but we should especially believe that God is present when we celebrate the divine office. Okay? So how, if God is everywhere, how can it be that God is sort of more present in some places than others? Right? That's a, that's a conundrum that we have to address. Um, what does St. Benedict mean by this? Actually, he's, he's giving the Orthodox teaching, and I, I mean small Orthodox in the sense of the, the traditional teaching about God's presence. So God is everywhere. It's we who have to learn how to become aware of God's presence. Right? It's, it's we who are not aware that he's here. We go about our day sometimes pretending like God isn't here or unaware that he's keeping us in being. We get caught up in all kinds of distractions, and, and we forget that God is here. Um, so how do we raise this awareness in ourselves? This is, this is a major project of the Benedictine rule, is to help us to become more and more aware of God's presence in all things. This requires two things. It requires a purification, and it requires education. And those of you who've been coming to meetings uh, and talks that I've been giving over the years will, will recognize the parallel here. Uh, first, we have the active life, where we purify ourselves of vices and sin. And then we have the contemplative life, where we learn, we change the way we think. And we, we come to think like Christians. So... Uh, I won't say a lot about purification in today's talk because I've, I've said a lot about that in other talks. But let me talk about the education and pedagogy. How do we learn how God is present? Um, uh, what does it mean to say God is present? How does this change the way I live my life? The two major pedagogical elements in our tradition uh, are the liturgy and the scriptures. So it's meditation on the scriptures Attendance, uh, attentive attendance at the liturgy uh, changes the way we see the world. Okay, so we, we start to see the world with the eyes of faith, right? So the scriptures, I would say, help us to understand history. Scriptures help us to understand all kinds of things, but history is an important part. Like, how has God acted? The, the, the prophets were very comfortable saying, well, God has done X, right? So God, God saved his people by bringing them through the Red Sea. So this is an example of how God acts through historical political events. God ransomed his people from Babylon when they were in captivity. God stirred up the heart of Cyrus the Persian, the, the Persian and freed the people from their captivity and sent them home. So this God acts through even emperors. Okay? Uh, but how do we know you know, if God is acting through President Obama or President-elect Trump, right? How do we know? You know, we have to train ourselves. We have to educate ourselves to know how God acts and be able to identify within the church, within a, a kind of educated discussion about what's going on, how God is acting in our history. The scriptures also train us to know how God acts in our hearts, uh, how, how to understand our desires, and also to understand our blindness. I'm going to come back to that for a, in a moment. Uh, the, the liturgy 
helps us, I think, uh, especially to understand nature itself, uh, to understand the world. Uh, so not, not now in sort of a political aspect, but in the aspect of, uh, I, I, I think in this case, I think about the poet uh, David Jones. Uh, he he uh, said, you know, can, can a poet write the word stone in a poem in the 20th century and expect his readers to think altar, <laughs> right? Because that's, that's what a st- an altar is made of stone. That's why God created stones, so that we could make altars, <laughs> right? Can a poet today say wood or tree and have the average reader understand cross, crucifixion, sacrifice, Christ, right? So the liturgy trains us to see these things, what wood is, what wax is, what wine is, what bread is, all those sorts of things, so that when we go out into the world, we see how God has made all things for our benefit so that we can have a relationship with him, so that we can work to create the kind of world where he is honored and we can enjoy honoring him. Let me say just a little bit about purification, which I've touched on already in talking about the scriptures. Uh, And the idea that the scriptures help us to identify our blindness. Uh, This is where I I found uh, René Girard particularly helpful, too. uh, uh, Because he talks a lot about how uh, we are actually blind to what we're doing in a lot of political life. That's one of his big themes. the scriptures, he, in, in his opinion then, uh, uh, the scriptures, the proclamation of the gospel is what reveals to us our blindness so that we can change. You know, so it shows us how we have, we tend uh, to try to wiggle out of our complicity in the violence of the world. <laughs> you know, that we try to imagine that we occupy a space outside and that violent people are somebody else. You know, um, Whereas, uh, say, Peter and Paul, uh, in, in, in his book, uh, one of his easier books to understand is called uh, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. He has a beautiful chapter on Peter and Paul at the end, and he points out that Peter couldn't fully become the rock, and Saul couldn't become Paul until both of them realized that they were responsible <laughs> for the crucifixion. First Peter, when he denies Christ, and in Luke's gospel, the cock crows, and what happens in Luke's gospel is Jesus looks at Peter. Right? Jesus turns and sees Peter, and Peter breaks down because he realizes that he said, he thought of himself. I'm sure he, when, he, when he said it, he believed it. I'll die with you. But when push came to shove, Peter ran away <laughs> and pretended that he didn't know him. So he allowed the crucifixion to go on as if it wasn't his problem, <laughs> right? Well, I don't know. No, no. So, but Peter had to realize this weakness in himself, this blindness to his own weakness um, before he could be forgiven by Christ and given his great commission to be the rock, right? Paul, obviously Paul's an easier one because Paul was persecuting the church and when uh, our Lord knocked him off the horse, he said, why are you persecuting me? Yes. But when he's talking about the gospel reading, uh-huh. is he talking about the gospel reading in the liturgy or just the New 
I would think both, in a sense. You know, I would I wouldn't see that there's a necessarily a distance between them, uh, because the gospels were, were written to be read at the liturgy. Okay. Right? Yeah. Does that make sense? <clears throat> yeah. I was just. Um, what struck me is you're talking about the gospel reading and mm-hmm. it related to not violence, mm-hmm. and uh, and then I have uh, another friend that's redemptorist. He's always talking about the second. Mm-hmm. Being the apostolic being the one that challenges us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, <clears throat> I was just trying to, you know, see the ones about unveiling our blindness and the other ones the challenge to go out into the world. And if he understood it that way, or if he, he was just kind of speaking in general about the Yeah, I, I'd have to think about that uh, to make sure I understood what, the, what your redemptorist trend is, is getting at. Uh, I, I think. You know, Girard's point is is fairly narrow and literary in one sense. You know, it's about the story, about the story but I but I think he understands that that the the correct interpretation of the story takes place in the church. You know, it takes place both in the liturgy, but also in the body of, of believers <coughs> who sort this out together in some way. You know, uh, but all of us they go through this purification uh, and realizing the blindness and so on. Um, so, in, in John's Gospel, in uh, chapter 9, Jesus accuses the Pharisees of being blind because they're, they're not able to see God present and active in the healing of a, of a man born blind. Right? So, uh, Jesus heals this man born blind. Uh, he gets hauled before the authorities and... Uh, says, you know, why, why don't you uh, go, go and find this Jesus? He was the one who healed me. The, the man born blind is eventually brought to belief in Christ, right? And he's persecuted because of it. He's thrown out of the synagogue. Uh, the Pharisees are, are the ones who are in conflict with Christ in this particular episode. And uh, at the end of it, our Lord says, you know, if, if you said you were blind, uh, you, you might actually be able to see, but it's because you pretend that you see that you're actually blind. So there's this human blindness to God's presence that, that already our Lord is identifying in the gospel. Uh, what causes this? Uh, Father Henry Nowen borrows the language of uh, Father Bernard Lonergan and he uses a fancy word, uh, scotosis. It's a Greek word. It comes from the Gospel of John, the prologue. And uh, at the beginning of the, the prologue, John says, uh, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay, now in, in John's Gospel, words often have several different meanings. And so one possible translation of this same sentence is that the darkness uh, did not understand it. Okay, so there's a sense in which a, a kind of blindness covers us and makes it difficult for us to see God's light shining. And it's, it's Christ who unlocks this for us, though we can see God present. You know, another image from the Gospels, once, once you start looking for these things, they're all over the Gospels. What happens when Jesus dies on the cross? What happens in the temple? The curtain is torn. What does the curtain uh, separate? Why is it there? Separates God from the rest of us. Exactly. So the curtain's torn. There's no separation anymore. 
<laughs> right? The Holy Spirit is poured out, and uh, God, through the Holy Spirit, trains us to be able to know that He's here, right? So that we can live, we can already begin to live in His kingdom now. Okay, uh, we we can't see it yet. It's what what uh, the full consummation is. We we don't grasp yet, but we can already begin living this new kingdom because. Christ has removed the separation. You know, uh, he, he's, he's gotten rid of the dividing veil that, that separated us from God. Thank you, Mike. Uh, so, page two. So, the problem is, when our souls are in darkness, this is where they start. We need this light, uh, the illumination that we receive in baptism uh, to show us the significance of things. St. Paul talks about this, so this might connect to the second reading idea. Uh, at the beginning of the letter to the Romans, he says that uh, because of uh, indulgences in, in carnal delights and so on, the, the Roman powers that, that were, uh, their, their minds were darkened. You know, their, their unthinking minds were darkened, he says. Uh, so, again, getting sort of caught up in... in uh, the fulfillment of our fleshly desires is part of the problem of darkness. This is why we need ascetical practices like fasting and keeping vigil and so on. Um, and they, he goes on to say, you know, if, if they had recognized Christ, if they had recognized the King in Christ, they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory, right? So, so again, there's this problem of recognition. God was present in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, but lots of people couldn't see it. So how do we, again, train ourselves to see this? Um, so as I said, first, let's, let's just say God is in all things. God is uh, in stars and quasars. Um, you know, the, the question of scale isn't, isn't difficult for God. Uh, if, if such things as strings exist at, you know, subatomic levels, God is there. Yeah, Tony? Is it a question of, like, appearance versus essence? That creation is the yeah, appearance of the essence of God? Um, it is, if we know how to read it, yeah. And so the, the problem is that appearances can deceive if, our, if we don't have eyes, the eyes of faith to see it, right? seems to be part of the problem is distinguishing the activity of the conceptual mind, the mm-hmm. perceptive mind, mm-hmm. versus the simply knowing mind. Mm-hmm. It seems like the blindness is all kind of kicked up by our perceptual mind, our conceptual mind, the one that kind of projects our experience more than actually sees it. I wake up every morning yeah. and I start this dialogue with myself, or I'm no. with myself, okay, I'm Tony, i got to get dressed for work, i got to do this and this and this and this, I, 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 I'm the center of the universe, functionally speaking. Um, it's a, so at, I, at, at the very least, that's a massive distraction. Yeah, I, I would, uh, I'd, I'd say it's, it's possible to incorporate that perspective into what I'm saying, but since it, it really sort of comes out of a, a more of a Buddhist uh, milieu, I, I, would, I would wait. I, I don't think conceptual categories are, are necessarily the problem because uh, because God gives us the concepts themselves you know that, that's actually a part of what educates us toward knowing him I agree I don't mm-hmm. think they're necessarily the problem mm-hmm. but I think they're 
Could be. Could be. Yeah. 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 So. Um, uh, so. Yeah. I, you know. I, I've said wrong concepts are a problem. <laughs> you seem to have a lot more of those. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'd say that. So I, again, I, I started by talking about nature versus super nature. I would say these are concepts that we probably would do better to do without. Well, I, I think uh, the, the concept of religion is is a tricky one because as Americans we sort of need that concept because our religion is protected under the First Amendment, so we have free exercise of our faith that way. But it's it's kind of a double-edged sword because this, as I say, this concept actually also is currently used to uphold a secular vision. And so by, by saying that Catholicism is a religion, we're also saying that something like the secular world actually exists, which what I'm saying is if we're really men and women of faith, it doesn't. Because there is nowhere that God is not present. So there is no such thing as the secular world. <laughs> okay. So yes, there are wrong concepts, I, I think. And that's, that's part of what I'm trying to illuminate, I suppose. But then there are hopefully correct concepts that, that will actually educate us toward God's presence. He does for Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they, when we get to a certain um, union with God goes beyond concepts, because God, God is not a concept. That, that, yeah. that seems to be a very important point. Um, yeah. we have to, there is a point at which we've gotten all the help we can get mm -hmm. from the concepts, and we have to step directly into the experience. Could be, could be. Yeah, but I would... Uh, I, I I would I, I wouldn't want to endorse that unqualifiedly in this in this venue. <laughs> if that's uh, sorry to use such such language. Um, so actually, it's funny. So I, I said the, the monastic tradition is unanimous in insisting that before we can become contemplatives, we have to first undergo the purification of an ascetical life. And I think that's that's part of what I want to make sure. Um, disciplines of charity. Forgiveness, humility. Uh, so I think part of what I want to do, Tony, is, is since I've already given all the conceptual stuff, I want to get back to just like the actual biblical language and the language from the rule so that, it's, that we have something to anchor ourselves to the rest of this. So thank you. So let me, let me uh, pick up where I was just a moment ago and just say that God is in all things. And once, once we reckon with that, that we look at the moon, God is there. We look at the sun. Don't look at the sun directly without proper glasses, but God is there. The fact that we have heat from the sun, the fact that, I mean, to, once you start looking at these things, you know, there are these physicists who, who work on this thing they call the anthropic principle, right? If, if any little constants, like if the constant of gravity were slightly different than it is, we couldn't be here. <laughs> you know, so if gravity was slightly stronger uh, things would just collapse. You know, the Earth would sort of collapse into itself. If gravity were weaker, we couldn't maintain enough oxygen, oxygen in the atmosphere to breathe. Okay, so it's an amazing system that God has set up in, uh, in on Earth. Um, that uh, you know, that the, the cycle of water evaporation and rain and and, uh, and so on. The the cycle of of the seasons, which are caused by the Earth's you know, tilting on its axis and rotating about, revolving about the sun. All these things are so fine-tuned to make life possible for us. We have the beauty of the change of seasons. 
Uh, you might not find the snow beautiful, but uh, I, I still do. I don't drive very much. <laughs> so um, we have uh, so many beautiful things about our world, and, and all of them are by a free choice of God. Right? Again, God, if God doesn't will that cats go on pre- reproducing, we don't have any more cats. <laughs> you know? um, we, we, we probably have too many cats in our monastery, but... Uh, uh, they are interesting creatures. Let's <laughs> just say that. Um, so, how do we train ourselves? So, I mentioned scripture and liturgy, and so let me say just a little bit more about that. Uh, when, as a musician, when I was uh, formerly working in the world of music. You know, one of the things a musician does is, is train him or herself to be able to hear certain things. Um, and I was a conductor, and so it, it, when you're a conductor, you especially have to learn how to hear lots of input and sort out what needs sorting out. So you're listening to, say, a whole orchestra playing, and you have to train yourself to be able to say, like, oh, the, um, the second violins, you were a little late on that entrance, <laughs> right? Uh, or I was listening to my brother singing this morning and thinking, um, so what is it about that one line that never sounds right? And I thought it's, it's the R vowel, or it's the R, R consonant. R's are difficult. Um, and uh, they're, they're taking too long to get through the R, and that's why it doesn't sound good. And I was thinking to myself after that, the rest of the brothers can't hear that. I hear that because uh, I've trained myself to hear that. So we want to train ourselves as Christians to be able to hear and see God. And so the scriptures are, as I say, are our first place to start with. By regularly meditating on the scriptures and doing Lectio Divina, we train ourselves to become aware. So, so what is God saying to me in this passage about my life as it exists today? You know, when I, um, one of my favorite stories from Lectio Divina was um, uh, a retired abbess who gave our retreat many years ago. When she was a young nun, uh, she was going through kind of a vocation crisis. And um, it was Epiphany. And she heard in the, uh, the, the gospel of the day, you know, the star went forth before them and came to rest over the place where the child was. And uh, the next morning after that, that celebration, she got up and she was walking from the um, one building toward the chapel. And uh, it was dark out. And she looked up, and there was this bright star right above the church. She said, oh, I see. Yeah, Christ is there. <laughs> so, so she, she realized that uh, uh, where she was was the right place. You know? um, so the, the scriptures, by listening carefully, by interpreting what's going on in my life through the lens of the scriptures, trying to understand, um, so reading what's going on, in, in my, my marriage with children, with job, with family, uh, what it, with friends, whatever it is, with my hopes, my fears, um, political situation, whatever it is. I'm trying to understand this through the biblical models that we are given. Uh, we come to see that uh, God can work in all kinds of ways. Uh, you know, there's... One writer I, I just saw a few weeks ago was lamenting, you know, um, the who, who knows what's going to happen with uh, with uh, President-elect Trump becoming president. 
Uh, certainly there are plenty of people who are re obviously really, really frightened by this possibility. Um, and uh, there are even people that, that, are, that voted for uh, Donald Trump who are frightened of this possibility. Um, could it be a chastisement? You know, is God chastising our country because of... I mean, there are plenty of things that, that we've done as a nation that, that are not really according to God's law. I mean, we, we have very permissive abortion laws. Uh, we're a very violent country, actually, and we're involved in military operations all over the place, uh, many of which don't get reported very much. Lots of people dying in places like Yemen. We don't hear about it even, but we're supplying many of the weapons uh, to Saudi Arabia to carry out these raids. Uh, you know, we've, we've had in the war in Afghanistan, I mean, we've, we've bombed wedding parties repeatedly. All kinds of terrible, terrible things are done in our name. Is it possible that God is chastising us? You know, are, are we, is, is God calling us to account by our current political situation and unrest? I don't know yet. I can't say for certain, but this is the kind of possibility that we can raise uh, if, we're, if we're attentive to the scriptures, because God does do this with the persons he loves. He chastises them, you know. And, and chastisement can be a, a way of repenting and, and changing so that we can fix the situation. Um, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I think the situation is complicated, and each of us, of course, is going to experience our political situation from a particular location. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, for me, it's just difficult to see the United States as, as a, a nation in the sense that Israel was a nation because we're so diverse. Uh, but uh, but it is, as I say, it is in our name, and it's with our tax money that uh, all kinds of military things are carried out all around the world. So, um, and, and a lot of times, you know, these things are carried out because we have certain economic desires in our own country for, for oil and transportation, things like this. And this involves us in, you know, sort of difficult alliances. Um, that, that's the world. I mean, we can't, we're, we won't escape this world uh, un untainted by unsavory political alliances. But then we have, we have to uh, learn to be aware of this and, and take responsibility for it in some way. So the scriptures can help us with this. The liturgy, as I said, uh, can also help us to, to recognize um, when we go outside and see, to look at, at the world that God has given us, to understand how all things come back to the liturgy in some way. Um, the, the last thing I'd like to, to say, the, oh, and uh, let me talk a little bit more about the rule and then about, uh, I'm going to end with uh, attentiveness. So in the rule, St. Benedict has many ways of talking about this, and it would be uh, you know, a fruitful exercise to go through the rule and ask, how does St. Benedict help us to see God's presence? The first thing I need to address is what I said at the beginning about the rule. How is it that St. Benedict can say that God is especially present at the liturgy? I think what he means by this is what I'm saying about the liturgy being pedagogical. So if we see what God is doing at the liturgy, uh, we see by the actions of the priest, Christ offering himself on the cross. We see by the action of the priest, Christ giving himself to us in the Holy Eucharist. We see in the processions of the priest to the altar. We see in the altar Christ present. Uh, we see in the pillars of the church the apostles with us. We see in the icons the saints with us. We see what's really going on. You know, um, 
Then when we go out into the world, again, the saints don't abandon us because we're not at the liturgy, but we remember that they're here. We remember we can ask them to help us. Uh, we can remember that God is present. We can have these images in our minds of what God is doing in the world that we brought with us from the liturgy so that our eyes are attentive then to uh, the, uh, the, his presence. When I was at uh, St. Walburga's Monastery in Colorado some years ago, they had just moved to this new location, and it was this very rocky terrain. Uh, they, were, they were kind of in this valley, very green valley, with all these boulders on either side. And they had one set of boulders that, that uh, I forget what they called them, but they were you know, uh, monks at prayer, because it looked like uh, three or four monks with hoods up like this, uh, slightly bent, like they're praying in the office, There's a series of rocks all next to each other. So this is the kind of imaginative, you know, looking at nature and seeing all of nature sort of praising God. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's as if the rocks themselves have, have sort of mimicked the... the uh, the form of uh, a person in prayer. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It seems like the posture of the spirit is, or the posture at least of attention, mm -hmm. is moving from observation to relationship. Mm -hmm. I'm no longer just seeing the world. I have the God behind it. I'm being present to it in a relational way. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's accurate? Um. Yeah, I, I mean, I think part of what it is is I come to see that that I'm part of this world. You know, I, I'm not separate from it. I'm not. I'm not just an observer. Uh, um, I, I'm I'm a part of this creation that's praising God. You know, so it's not just and it's not just me. It's the rocks too. Right. You know, it's the we're all <laughs> we're all we're all connected in this act of praise. You know, it's a relational experience. I, I suppose you could put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, something to that shift mm -hmm. of attention. There's some kind of opening there that's just from just seeing to leading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. What I can do is uh, say just a couple things about attentiveness because that's the last thing I wanted to to mention. And then I, I'd like to have a little bit of time to take questions if you have any. Um, so to you, you know that it's possible to be uh, oblivious to all kinds of things that go on in, in our lives. We can, we can be unaware of the person who's sitting next to us uh, if we're focusing on something else. So what we want to do is work to create a kind of attentiveness to God's presence in all things. What distracts us? Oftentimes what distracts us, and this, this actually touches on some of the things that Tony's been saying, um, in, the, in the Catholic tradition, we would say what distracts us a lot of the time is passion. Uh, passion in the sense of uh, movements of my emotions, of my thoughts, uh, that are out of my control to some extent, because that's what a passion is. It's something I'm passive toward, something that happens to me. Uh, so if I'm, say, a, a, an angry person by habit, Anger is a passion because it's something that happens to me that I'm not in control of. But the other problem with these passions, and in, in monastic spiritual theology, we usually name them as uh, gluttony, lust, avarice, sadness, 
anger, acedia or sloth, like spiritual boredom, just getting tired of having to pray all the time, vainglory and pride. So these are the main passions that, that we struggle against. Uh, these are all obstacles. They all blind us in some way or other. And I think uh, the easiest way to see this is comparing uh, passions to, say, addictions. So, for example, if someone is addicted to alcohol, this is a failure of temperance, right? It's, it's, it's related to gluttony. It's a need to have too much of something that's actually in itself a good. There's nothing wrong with alcohol. But when it becomes an addiction, I don't have control. It's something that I, I, I become passive. I can't fix it myself. But it also starts to act on me. Um, so I, my, uh, my, my father's a recovered alcoholic, and uh, I've been to several of his uh, AA meetings. And um, they often share their experiences. And, and a typical experience is like, you know, I, I'm, I'm driving home from work, and I notice that there's a... Uh, uh, there's a sale on beer at this place, and I make a mental note of it. And I, I sneak out later from someplace I'm supposed to be, and I go and buy the beer, and I hide it. Right, so this is, uh, my mind is being bent by a need to get alcohol in such a way that the things I'm supposed to be paying attention to, like, say, my family or uh, work, <laughs> I'm not paying attention to these things anymore because my, my mind is being distracted and driven by this need uh, to get alcohol. This is an extreme situation, but all these passions function in some similar way. So one of the things I found, because I, I'm a sort of typical choleric person, which means uh, I have a, a lot of energy and um, uh, uh, this energy can flare up into anger. <laughs> and this, the problem with anger... Uh, it's not just that anger makes us violent and uh, can break relationships. That's very bad. But when it becomes a passion like this, uh, one starts to look for excuses to be angry. You know, I, I'm driven by a need to find something to be angry with. Okay? And as a result, I misinterpret the world. I see the world as a series of things that make me angry, <laughs> rather than a series of things that might make me grateful. Okay, so, so part of my personal ascesis is to battle against anger, to learn patience, to learn to be grateful for things, even when, say, they might not be what I would choose, right? So, um, uh, you know, I, I discovered as a, as a musical conductor again that if you get angry at your musicians, they shape up really quick. <laughs> uh, but they also fear you, and they, they might... Uh, this, isn't, this doesn't always work with singers, because singers, since their bodies are their instruments, if they're afraid, um, like sopranos can't relax and get those high notes in a nice, relaxed sound, they, they start to sound thin and tentative. And so anger doesn't... Uh, uh, has its limitations. But my, my point in all this is that to learn to see, to learn to be attentive to God's presence in everyday life, I have to learn to become aware of the ways in which I actually plot against that. <laughs> you know, because to, to see God's presence in everything might require of me to change. It might require of me to give certain things up. Uh, it might require for me not to be an angry person. Or it might require that, say, there are all kinds of things that can distract us from God's presence. Uh, uh, it, it might require that, um, you know, I, I would say, to, to me, a lot of 
say, television, entertainment, social media. These are all things that get our, our thoughts and passions going in certain directions that make it very, very difficult to see God's involvement. Um, uh, I, I, I'd like to be able to give you a, a stronger, sort of more coherent explanation of that, which is mostly an intuition and an empirical observation. Um, I, I was off of Facebook for a really long time, but just before the election, I, I was uh, checking things out. And it was quite astonishing to me the way in which um, unhealthy patterns of thought just reproduce themselves <laughs> as people read each other's posts and build off of them. And certain memes just keep reappearing and you know they keep getting shared. And um, they're not necessarily true. And they distort. They, they don't allow us to sort of ask what's really going on. You know, how... And, and to, to be able to ask what's really going on is the first step to asking, what is God doing in this? You know, how is God involved? Um, what is God saying to me in my actual life? Um, so to um, work at attentiveness, you know, to slow down. Uh, I don't have to be thinking, I don't have to have an opinion about everything. This is a huge pressure we have these days. You're either for or against this politician. Say, well, you know, we can be like ants. I'm not really on anybody's side because I'm not sure if anybody's on my side. <laughs> uh, we can wait. We can watch. We can think about it. Um, we can go back to the scriptures. We can pray. We can go to the liturgy. We can, we can take time away. Um, we don't have to be driven constantly by a need to opine, uh, by a need to engage with certain things. But just learn to take a step back and and notice what, what God is giving me right now, the things I don't often notice. Um, uh, and again, I'll just say, I'll, I'll, I'll use anger as my last example and then take questions. Um, how often it is that in getting annoyed by things that aren't what I want, I miss the things that I've already been given. You know, the things that, that, that actually might be better for me than what I, what I think I want. Um, how often I, I get annoyed with my brothers and I miss the fact that they're always showing up for the office, that, that they've given their life over to Christ just as I have. Um, and and I, I could honor that instead of just finding fault. You know? And in honoring them, I, I begin to see Christ's presence in I see that Christ, Christ is what's motivating them, just as I hope he's motivating me. Uh, I didn't get to say as much as I wanted to about the rule, um, and, and maybe this will be a part of a future podcast, but I, I, I wanted to see if there are, are questions or observations from any of you. Yes, Matt? I have uh, one observation, one question, one observation is your point, uh, the example you gave of, of the, uh, the rock Really present uh, in the Psalms. 
that go along with this would be uh, prayer, fasting, and giving alms. Uh, so, you know, we, we could maybe expand that to, say, the, the corporal spiritual works of mercy. So a discipline that, that um, works against our own passions and opens us up to service of others in charity. Um, but yes, the, the, the liturgy is part of prayer. So uh, that would be, that's also really good ascesis. The thing I, I guess where I got a little bit distracted, because it's a major concern of mine, is that our modern world, we have this new thing of uh, the various communication media. And they, they aren't bad, but they also need a lot of discernment to be used in a productive way and not in a way that's distracting. So, th so that's I, my major concern, is that, in my opinion, there hasn't been a lot of careful thought about how to use social media, if at all. Um, my tendency is not to use it, um, but, but as someone who's involved in promotion of the monastery, it's very helpful. You know, I, I, I also... Um, I know that I can reach people that way very easily. But boy, is it, it's, one has to be very vigilant not to get hooked on it, you know. <laughs> it's really tough. I mean, you, you see it, um, you know, you go, go downtown and everywhere you go, right? right now, how attentive am I to, to what's, how God is present to me, right? I'm not attentive to anybody present to me. I'm being attentive to somebody who might be in Taiwan. <laughs> uh, you know, but, but the people who are around me who, who might be bearing Christ to me right now, uh, I, I'm not even aware that they're there. So now again, does that mean we don't use smartphones ever? I, I think it would be foolish to say that. But, but, um, but it's a major concern of mine. And that, that's, that's why I think I wasn't very clear because I, I get, uh, I, I'm trying to work my way through this. <laughs> as a middle-aged guy now, 
<laughs> For whom this is, some of this is new. Tony. Seems to be that they want you to spend a whole lot of time, sometimes years, mm -hmm. first training your attention. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, the primary purpose of the recitation of Jesus' word is to have you yeah. focus your attention on this positive object over and over again. Mm -hmm. Every time it wanders, and every time the one gets pulled toward a passion, your only job is to recognize that that's what's happening and mm -hmm. come back to the practice. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and this way, you're training. So in the Western tradition, there's there's nothing wrong with the Jesus prayer, though. Uh, you know, it's 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 from the the Orthodox tradition. So in, in the Western tradition, the two uh, primary ways of so th thank you for bringing this up. The two primary practices of prayer uh, that involve this would be uh, memorization of short passages from the scriptures or short lines. Uh, it, it, a long time ago, these used to be called ejaculations. We don't use that for obvious reasons now. But um, just to say, like, my, I had a great-grandmother who would just say, you know, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, Jesus, Mary, Joseph. I, when, when I have to visit foreign countries and, and get rides from, from scary drivers, uh, I add, uh, you know, holy angels of God to that, <laughs> to you know, make sure we get to our destination safely. Uh, but just memorization of short passages from scriptures and repetition of these uh, to bring the mind back from distractions. The second is the rosary, which is obviously very closely connected to the Jesus prayer in the sense of using uh, some reminder of beads that uh, we bring our mind back to the mystery that we're meditating on. And it gives us some structure to focus. So, yeah, thank you. That's that's very helpful. Uh, yes, Kevin. Can you the day of the next uh, I, I wish I could. Uh, it seems to me that because of January 1st, what did we say about the reading group? We're going to kick it back. We're going to meet on New Year's Day. Okay. Um, so let me, let me assume that it's going to be January 8th for now, unless you hear from me. And again, I'll, I'll make sure to get in touch with you uh, by phone or, or uh, mail. Okay. Yeah, there, there's something, we, we have our community retreat coming up at the end of January, and that's going to affect our meeting somehow, but it might not be until the February meeting. So um, I'll, I'll keep you posted on that. Okay. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just, I, I'm, I'm still not caught up. Would you say, say a prayer for Father Francis, if you would. He's a friend of ours who's entering as a claustral oblate in January. Uh, I'm very, he's a very, very competent man. He was the administrator. I, I should be shutting this off. Uh, 